Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Ralph Stedman, who is an artist. A book of collected drawings is titled A Life in Ink, and it's published by Chronicle Books. Ralph Stedman has been uh, an artist for... Rolling Stone, best known for his work with Hunter Thompson, illustrated Alice in Wonderland, Treasure Island, Animal Farm, The Poor Mouth, Fahrenheit 451. There's also movie posters and album covers, Will Self's columns in The Independent. Ralph Stedman, for this book, A Life in Ink, you were able to assemble a large collection of drawings. How were you able to find all of them? I have drawers full of drawings. It was the organization of it that was quite difficult, and being able to sort of find them. I was told by an early agent, it's a good career move if I were to sell my originals. And it was the worst thing I ever did, was sell originals. Rolling Stone has a few of them, or had them. I don't know whether they still have. But that's not one of those things I'm, I particularly like to do. I'd rather keep them. I even come across things that I'd forgotten all about. And it's almost like seeing something new again. Are they in file cabinets or are they just scattered around the house? They've got to turn some largish planchests. That's right, planchests. And there's, st- there's a load of stuff in there. I'm sure there's another book in there somewhere. It's crazy. Enough to think about, really. What I've become now is more of a pictorial polluter than an artist. Although people say to you, oh, you're not really an artist. You're only a cartoonist. So I have to put up with that, too. I don't know what I'm supposed to be, really, anymore. But I like using things like collage. That's part part of the thing I'm keen on. And I'll tell you one of the really nice things is my dirty water drawings. I found that if I use, I have water by me and I to wash brushes out in and ink nibs, you know, uh, uh, pens. If you leave the water long enough, it starts to smell. And so the smellier and the dirtier it gets, the more interesting it is when you pour some of it from about six foot down onto another piece of paper, a brand new clean piece of paper. If you let it dry, which takes about another four days, five days, sometimes six days, if it's smelly enough, you have the most wonderful textures happen. And I find that quite interesting. Well, either throwing that water away and getting fresh water or use it until it's no longer usable as an ink washer, as a brush washer. I've seen those drawings. Everyone has seen uh, Ralph Stedman's drawings like that. How did you come by that technique of just pouring the water on and waiting for it to dry? There came a time when I thought, 
wonder what happens when you pour this in a water because it's full of different colours, really, although it's gone more or less murky coloured, dark, filth. You know, it's filth. And I suddenly really thought filthy drawings are quite good to do because they're so textural. Ralph Stedman, let's go back in your career a bit. When you were first starting out, you were starting out when you were in the RAF, you were doing technical drawing. Was that the first drawing you had ever done? Not quite. What I'd done two years before doing my military service, I'd worked for the Haviland Aircraft Company, and it was in a place near Chester, in Cheshire, in England. And I had to go do an apprenticeship when I was 16. And after nine months, I couldn't stand it. I had to leave. I couldn't stand factory life. So I left and eventually got a job in an advertising agency. And I was, I was taught how to do trademarks and things like that. And the, the studio manager's name was Mr. Fiddler. I used to do scribbly things, not really knowing what I was doing or wanting to do. But I did come across an advert in a newspaper which said, you too can learn to draw and earn pounds. The correspondence course was called the Percy V. Bradshaw Press Art School course. You you know, so you I could learn to draw. And they had all old cartoonists, you know, pre-war and after-the-war cartoonists, which I looked at and saw and... I liked the one called Giles. It was a, had a Giles family and a grandma in it. And it was quite interesting. I, I got a little influence from that. At that point, when you were drawing, was it mostly cartoon drawing? Were they having you do any real-life drawing? Or did that come later on when you went to art school? The art school I did was in East Ham Tech College, where I... I went and they had a a model about three times a week you could go to that. I had a lovely art teacher who I, st- I remained friends with throughout his life. His name was Leslie Richardson. And he used to employ, among others, a lady called Stella. And you may know the other one, Quentin Crisp. Oh, really? Yeah, who did the, the Naked Civil Servant. Remember that film? I asked him once. I, he was marvellous. He wouldn't come down for a cup of tea with us halfway through. He just would stay in his stay in the room. I asked him once, "Are there any poses that you've thought about but never done?" He said, "Well, yes." Sort of very, very. Oh, he's such a polite man. What would you like to do? And he he got up off his stool, and lifted the stool in the air and held it above his head in a magnificent gesture. I said, can you hold that, uh, Quentin? Oh, yes. He held it for half an hour with it above his head for us to draw. It was incredible really, to be able to do that. A lovely man. He was the one who also, I believe, and he lived in New York for a while. He went and lived there. And he never used to bother dusting because he said, dusting is something you do, and it goes, floats up into the air, 
and then comes down again. So he didn't see the point of doing dusting his place. <laughs> Crazy thing. He used to sit for in that, and then he, he would sit so absolutely still. Amazing. That's why I was rather cu curious to find out whether he could do something that he thought about but never done. And there was this woman, Stella, who uh, used to like a half break halfway through. She never put anything on. She'd light up a fag, a cigarette, and wander around looking at the drawings of her, you know, by different people. It was very a bit disquieting, you know, a bit strange to have her wandering about with nothing on and lighting a fag, you know. They were an odd crowd. But the teacher was marvellous, Leslie Richardson, because he used to sit, you know, he'd take your place, sit on the, the donkey, donkey, you know, they call them donkeys, a drawing donkey, you know. You sit on it and it's got, and there's a sort of a flap up which you put your board on with a piece of paper to draw on. He used to take his place there and in the corner of your drawing, he would do... A part, a part, a section of what you were trying to draw, and he would, he would tell you at full voice, so that everyone else in the room got the same lesson, as it were, as I was getting. And it was amazing how helpful it was, because as he spoke about somebody's work, you thought about your own at the same time. And so, say if there were 20 students in the class, you'd have 20 lessons. So you started sending in uh, illustrations to various newspapers. You did have a, a, a book, and you took that book to New York. I was doing drawings for Private Eye magazine in England. Dan Rotina. Pam and Dan were a couple. I'd come into Private Eye, and I met him there, and he just said to me, why don't you come to America sometime? So I said, well, I thought about it, but, well, you should. Look, if you come, stay with me and Pam. So that's what I did, actually. I went to America, and I went to stay with them. But I, after a couple of weeks, they'd not long been married. I felt a bit in the way, as it were. But I got a call from a new magazine that was starting. And it, it was called Scanlands. And Scanlan was the name of a little-known Nottingham pig farmer. They decided what they were going to do. They had several things that they wanted to sort of achieve. And one of them was to get Nixon impeached. The other things was uh, to take on the dirty kitchens of New York. And it was on 42nd Street. It was above an Irish pub. That was quite a nice place, actually. And then I was called in by, I got a message from a guy called J.C. Suarez from Brooklyn. You know, and he talked like, I, I can't do this. But, he, you know, uh, Ralph Simon, yeah. Uh, How would you like to go to Kentucky and meet an ex-Hells Angel who just shaved his head? So I said, yes. Uh, what what's he do? Well, he's looking for an, an illustrator, and the one that he got has gone to London to a cartoon festival, which is quite funny, really. So I got the job instead. You know, I if I go down to Kentucky, 
and meet with Hunter. So I took a little camera with me, a little... Oh, first of all, the night before I went, I had had some inks and pens and colors with me. But I went to stay with Don Goddard, who went went to lunch, dinner, rather, or supper, with um, Don Goddard and his wife. She was a representative for Revlon, Revlon, the... Uh, the makeup people. I'd left my colours and everything in the cab on the way over to their place, and I was off the next morning. So I got took all her samples, colours of colours and lipsticks and stuff like that, and uh, that became the beginning of Gonzo, really, because Hunter, we were we a couple of days looking for one another. Somebody told Hunter that we, you won't miss him. He, he, well, he looks weird because I had a little goatee beard at the time. When Hunter did see me, I heard this voice. You know, the voice behind him. Excuse me. Yeah, are you Ralph Simon? Yes, the artist, mm. England. Yes, yeah, I'm Hunter Thompson. My God, he said. They said you were weird. But not that weird. He called me. I don't know whether you know what this is, but he he described me as a matted-haired geek with string warts. Now, do you know what that is? I I've never even drawn one a matted-haired geek with string warts, but that's how I was described by him. Insofar as I know, a, a geek uh, would be in a circus and would bite chickens' heads off. Oh right. Oh geek, really. Oh, geek, but a matted head geek. I mean, I don't know. Um, do you do you know what a stringwort is? <laughs> no, no, I have no idea what it is. I, a wart. I know what a wart is. I think Hunter Thompson had his own way of describing things. There's a sense in all of his writings that he was not quite sober and was on one drug or another. Yeah. Or just drunk pretty much the entire time. But somebody who writes like that would have to be sober enough to be able to put it down on paper. When I stayed the same hotel as him, in his room, he always ordered, before he came downstairs for breakfast, he'd have six Bloody Marys on a tray brought up to his room. So that's how he started his day. <laughs> I think he'd been told he was not in a good condition. But uh, he did say to me, I'd feel real trapped in this life, Ralph, if I didn't know I could commit suicide at any moment. And he had 23 fully loaded guns in his room at Owl Farm. And in fact, the bullet holes still through the, the cooker hood in the kitchen. And he committed suicide with his son in the next room and his uh, wife, Jennifer. So it was quite a sad thing to happen, you know. Going back to when you first met him, you were with him for the Kentucky Derby and then you went with him to the Honolulu Marathon? Yeah, and the idea of the marathon, the Honolulu Marathon was, don't forget, we come out the, the chocks full speed and we run for three miles. And then we have a lorry picking a truck will pick us up there and drive us to a point 
near Heartbreak Hill, where the final, the marathon runners are at their last, just a bit to go, and it's up the Heartbreak Hill, which is what really breaks people. You know, just a hill going upwards. And this fella's friends of Hunter had a house down the bottom of it. We were, by this time, over at that little house at the bottom of the Heartbreak Hill with a drink in our hands, waiting for the people and saying, run, you bastards, run, you see, to, to pass by. And they were going, yeah, you unsporting people, you horrible, yeah, you know. And then, of course, getting themselves into a hell of a mess, right, themselves trying to get that anger out, you know, they're being laughed at from this spot where we were all having a party. That was a really unsporting thing to do. When that was going on, was Hunter writing? Was he just talking to you? And did you have sketch pads with you? I had sketchbooks, little sketchbooks, and I'd do little scribbles in it, which I'd finish later, you know, and do do, uh, the drawing later on. But I'd usually finished my work before Hunter had started, although he kept notes in a book. He used to write in red, red biro, you know. He says, well, damn you, you know, you, you've done your drawings. I haven't started yet. He liked fax machines. He, he couldn't stand anything electronic, but the fax machine was, an old fax machine was a, well, you know, the first kind of computer, wasn't it? When the assignment came from Rolling Stone for these events, and they were Rolling Stone, right? Yeah. Did you know how many drawings you'd be submitting, or would you just submit a bunch of drawings and then they would select however number they wanted? Yeah, they use most of them, actually. If I, I do at least half a dozen and 12, if possible, you know. And I'd send them from England. I also had a, I still got it actually over at the, a huge old upright camera thing, you know, which you put your drawing down on it and take transparency pictures like five by four, you know, and send those off. It was a way of doing it then, which kind of served the purpose quite well. It was amazing how well it worked. So you would send the pictures over to Rolling Stone? Yeah. And then they would use those pictures in the magazine? Yeah. And the originals stayed in England with you? Yeah, except that I sold quite a few of them to uh, Jan Wenner. I think he paid about 50 pounds each for them, you know. It was different for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or on the campaign trail because in those cases you did not accompany Hunter Thompson, right? He went with Oscar Acosta, who was a Cuban artist. What was that story that was going on at the time? There was another man. I think he committed suicide or held someone up. Oh, I know. Hunter went to the Mint 400. Is that a, you heard of that, the race? For for motorbikes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in the book. Yeah. Yeah. The Mint 400. He liked going with this Cuban guy called Oscar Acosta. He was a, some kind of, some kind of psychiatrist type of lawyer or type, I don't know, and a writer, but Hunter would do the writing, but he wanted somebody like a lawyer with him in case he got into trouble, you know. I didn't really know. By the way, the other thing is that we found out what Gonzo meant 
because a man saw the first thing we did together and said, and his name was, yeah, Bill Cardoza. I can never remember his name either. Bill Cardoza, who lived in Sosalito over the, is it the Brooklyn Bridge? or Golden Gate. Yeah, yeah, right. He was the first one to use the word gonzo. And he had this pure gonzo. And Hunter said, gonzo? Gonzo, what the fuck's gonzo? You know. And then he thought for a minute and he said, he said, gonzo, gonzo. Oh, yeah. I like it, I like it. I like that word, gonzo. Oh, okay, gonzo, I'm going to use that. You know, so he got used to using it. Bill Cardoza was the one who coined it. And we found out it means... Gon the word gonzo is Portuguese, and it means hinge. Hinge, H-I-N-G-E. So I, sub I suspect that it means unhinged. You know how you feel people, things get unhinged? Yeah, it's a perfect description of, of the work you guys did. It's excellent, but it was his, his word, Bill Cardoza. For those two books... And the uh, well, they were originally in Rolling Stone. When you drew them, had Hunter done the writing, and then he sent it to you, and then you drew off the writing, or how did no, that no, work? No, I did my drawings, and it was only that he he'd send the fax to say, "Can you do it? What? You no, know, this thing, or that drawing, or something else." He didn't. He didn't cover that bit. Could you? Could you do something about that? So I'd read what he'd written by this time. And I could do something on that. But so things came about in that respect, you know, that way. It was just by accident sometimes how it came about. Because I've always said there was no, no such thing as a mistake. People said to me, you know, don't you use a pencil to draw with first? And I say, no, I don't do that. I go straight in. And he said, don't you make a mistake? I said, there's no such thing as a mistake. A mistake's an opportunity to do something else, you know. At that point, would you go, well, it's not a mistake. I'm just going to go from here? I'll take it in there, yeah. So build the thing up from that and in, in that. And so I kind of had to take a shot at it. And I could always white out places or scumble things and do things of that kind. So that's just exactly what I did. And I loved it best like that. Because, you see, the thing is, I had to go... When I was at the Haviland Aircraft Company, I also had to go once a week to Wrexham Technical College in Wales to do a technical drawing. So the technical drawing part came into my later work because I used straight lines for, you know, those drawings of fear and loathing with, with the straight-lined deserts, you know, and uprights for buildings, and and circles. I loved doing all those sort of things, but I made use of them. I loved the combination of the splat of ink with the geometric, and the combination makes an interesting, it's sort of important to have that difference, and they're not all. it's not all done in the same way. And also a splat is an accident which usually is a happy one, you know, and you always turn it into something else. That's how it works. It, it's all been a, a lifetime of swindling. I've done, I've swindled my drawings onto the page. Many of your drawings have 
writing on them. And I never know whether I'm supposed to just see the writing as something in addition, as part of it, or just look at it as art. It's not art, but it, it helps sometimes because people want to read who is that there. Either you can have it set below it as a, a caption, or you can write it on the drawing. And most of the time I used to like writing on the drawings to say what was there. And sometimes, as you'll see through this book, you'll see the odd bit of writing in it. And I rather like that. It makes it look a bit like a document as much as a drawing. It gives it something fresh, you know. What did Hunter think of all your drawings? Did he, did he always like them? Did he ever say, I don't like this? Oh, filthy. There's filthy drawings, Rob. I should have put some of the letters in from Hunter. They were all disgusting insults about me, like that matted hair geek. He loved to say the worst thing he could possibly think of in the drawings. They're cancerous things. Making a mess on a page was what I did. And I think he liked to complain about my work, but still want them there because I think it, they were in a way a sort of a, a rule breaker you know the impression I got was that on some level the style of drawing of Ralph Steadman seemed to be kind of equivalent in some weird way to the gonzo journalism the writing of Hunter Thompson it all fit together or maybe it just fit together because I always saw it together. Yeah, that's probably it, yeah. I mean, I, happy accident, I'd say. I mean, of all the people that I should be, end up meeting when I went to America, Hunter Thompson was the person to meet because I've met other people and it's not quite. it doesn't quite work. I've done things for other people. Uh, I mean, I've done illustrated uh, Animal Farm as well and things like that. And then the Alice in Wonderland books, Through the Looking Glass. I tried to do something else for Alice in Wonderland. And also Sigmund Freud, and I did that. And for Sigmund Freud, I wanted to see where the couch had been kept. And I went and found a cellar in the ninth District of Vienna. But the curator let me go downstairs to look at this room where he introduced his patients, so-called, and I lay down on the floor with this little camera and took pictures of, of the wall. And the old wallpaper from the 30s was still on the walls and an old sink, you know, those white box sinks. They were there still. It was a fascinating thing to do that and to find out that you used to go to a place called Cafe Lantman which is a, a restaurant, which he'd go and have a morning coffee or whatever. And as barber, I found out where his barber had performed his duties as a barber. It just went like that. It was, and this is the other thing I used to do. I went to, When I went to America for the first time, I used to go around the streets with this little Minox camera and click away at things I saw, like bums in the street, you know. There was one marvellous incident in New York before Central Park. I was just walking down there and there was a bum hanging onto the water hydrant in the pavement. 
on the sidewalk. And as the woman come up to him and was going, why do you get a job? Why do you get up off your bum and get a job, you you lazy sad, you know, that sort of thing. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. And he's going, oh, leave me alone, lady, leave me alone, you know. <laughs> they became really interesting. And I did a book of New York. You could see people. You wouldn't have to lift the camera up to your eye. You'd just take it from, a, from the hip, as it were, you know, take a picture. And I got all these pictures of, of New York in, from 1970 onwards. And that's been in a book? Well, they're not in a book, no. I, perhaps I should do that. How did you get involved in doing um, film posters and album covers? Did people just contact you and say, we want a Ralph Steadman? Yeah, that's how I got it. Because there was a couple of agents in England, and I was asked to do cartoon drawings of Judy Driscoll, Brian Auger, and the Trinity, you know, people like that. And I had to meet her, and I do a drawing in a scribble book, you know. But I eventually did drawings of her and of Brian Organ and the Trinity, and I used as a background where she lived in London, being able to take pictures of it and then redo it as a drawing. There were things like that where I was rung up and asked to do. For instance, there was a cover I had to do for a book of stupid little grapes. I started doing wine drawings. And Hunter said, you know, they're doing these stupid little grapes. I, so I did The Grapes of Ralph as a book jacket. <laughs> that, that became my first book of drawings of, of uh, wine, you know. I, I guess one of the advantages of your style is that when people contact you, they don't know what they're getting but they should be happy with it no matter how it turns out because this is what they asked for. I think so. They want an accident, don't they? It's an accident waiting to happen there. And I, I like it myself when I see that. And I sometimes see an accident that's so bloody wonderful. There's no way I could have drawn it without it happening unexpectedly. So you just start drawing and doing whatever and whatever comes up, you're going, oh, yeah, I can do it. something with that. I can do something with that. And it shifts and changes. Yep, that's right. It's a big swindle, actually. I've been a pretentious son of a bitch for 60 years. <laughs> your drawings in the second half of A Life in Ink, Ralph Steadman, your drawings became more and more political and angrier and angrier, or seemingly that way. Yeah, is that pretty much how you view the world at this point? There's an image from the pandemic at the end of the book, and there are a couple of images of Trump. But there's one image of Republican, and it's a skeleton. And it suddenly occurred to me as I was reading it that it, it felt to me like this is today's Republicans and the virus. That's it, Harper's Weekly drawing. It's uh, Marching Dead Ahead. That's the one, a Harper's Weekly. I wasn't a prophet in any, anyway. Do you find it easier or harder to do portraits? I noticed portraits of Martin Amos, of Salman Rushdie, and then there's the Breaking Bad portraits. How easy or hard is it to do them? You see, I'd never heard of Breaking Bad when I was asked to do it. Jesse Pinkman and Saul Goodman 
I wonder what the hell the whole thing was. And we watched three episodes a night until it was finished so that I could get used to what these people looked like. And I would take photographs off the television as well. And it uh, worked best that way. I tell you, it's all a swindle. That's why I love to use splats and the, so uncontrollable splats and things like that. Uncontrollable lines as well is quite nice. But it's, that's why it's nice to do a compass. You know what a compass does and you can make it go, you can put lots of compass lines within one within the other, you know, and use it. And whilst you're using that, you may have to do, say the word good or something. So you do compasses. But, but the first compass would be perhaps six lines. The second one would be freehand and then draw with a compass after on top of that. I'm in charge after all, you know. I'm only, I'm only, that's it. I'm in charge of a wild animal, if you like, with a, a need to sort of make it look as if you'd never be able to do it like that again because it wouldn't work out like that again. So that really is part of the drawing of people, you know, things. But that one is interesting. You should mention that. I'm just looking at it now, that Harper's Weekly marching, marching dead ahead. And that wasn't so long ago. That was only 2009. That's the one I think you were referring to. And, of course, don't, don't forget that I, I love getting photocopies of anatomy books, really old, you know, Victorian anatomy books, and using the actual photocopies of that as part of the drawing I will do, like that one has got actual drawing in it, but it's just slightly animated by myself in a freer kind of way. It's just a means of, to an end, you know, to, to do that. There's nothing stopping you other than someone else's copyright at a certain point, I guess. If there was copyright for those drawings, I'm sure there might be. Though By the time I've cut them up and done someone, the copyright's gone, hasn't it? No one would notice it. Sort of like sampling in a um, piece of music. It becomes something else. Yeah, it could be that, yes. But you see, that's what... Marcel Duchamp used to do. I was really very influenced by him and the things that he did and put together, putting a bicycle wheel on a stool. That was his piece of sculpture. By the way, there's one drawing in here. It's called Domestic Fox Hunting. It's of a fox and it's in our kitchen. I saw that. Yeah, and I did the, the hunters there with the dogs in there and the horses. I photographed that hot fox. I had to get him outside. We had to call someone at RSPCA to come and get the fox out of the kitchen because I didn't know quite how to handle it. But I wanted to get a picture of him first, so I did that. There's a comment you make in the book, actually it pops up more than once, about the difference between Nixon and Trump in that Nixon at least was a politician. Trump is the worst creature. I've ever come across in politics or anywhere, you know, hideous man. Does that make it harder for you to try to get an image compared to somebody like Nixon? Not Nixon. No, I quite, quite enjoyed drawing Nixon. Trump is, is just, he's fouling his own, his own uh, 
In fact, it's more of a bloody shit than anything else. I'm, I think I'm paying him too much of a compliment. This is before I really knew what it was like. Did him as Trumple Stiltskin. That's too nice a character. So I've let myself down, really, doing that. But I have, I have done him as a swamp pet. A swamp pet. I don't know what a swamp pet would be. One of the elements of Hunter Thompson's writing was exaggeration. And you can do that with Nixon. But with Trump, you can't really exaggerate because it's right there in front of you. I just love to know what Hunter would have thought of him. He would have really made made a mockery of him somehow. He really was quite such a talented writer, really. I mean, his use of language was quite amazing. Ralph Steadman, how are you handling the pandemic? Quietly, quietly. I try and do something. I sometimes sat in front of a television with the camera and taken things off it and then gone to the studio and done something else and I've been using dirty water, of course. The more it smells, the better it gets, you know. There's so many people at the moment doing good works for this, kind-hearted in the way they're treating it, you know, and helping with old people. I suppose I'm one. Whether you have an assignment or not, you're, are you always busy uh, making your drawings? I'm doing things. I, I just love to make this mess on the floor or use colour water sometimes, and then wait for it to dry and see what, what comes out of it. And it's quite interesting what happens. So I'm still doing stuff like that. As you probably didn't see my book, book about God, that you call The Big I Am. No, I haven't. That's a book that never really saw the light of day. It was too grand a book, I think. It's called The Big I Am. And when was that published? About 95-ish. I quite liked it, actually. When you're looking at art now, do you look at it differently today after so many years of working? Has your taste changed, or is it pretty much the way it's always been? I think so. I don't know if I've improved or not, but I, I get a bit more depressed now because, I mean, you know, life's been passing by. It's a great shame, really. I think another hundred years would be quite good. I could do something with another hundred years. My father said, somebody said to him, Do you know, Mr. Stedman, I'm 70 today. And my father just said, And you're bloody lucky too. He went into 94 or 96. And he said the only thing he'd noticed about growing older that that the undertaker raises his hat to him. I need to do an outro kind of question that I can end the interview with. You could always say, He uses the ink that stinks. You've been listening to an interview with Ralph Steadman, whose book is titled A Life in Ink. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.